Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti Golar, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, and this is Season 7. Thank you to all of our returning listeners, and if you are new to the pod, welcome to the BGG family. We have some new things in store for you this season. Throughout this season, we'll be focusing on how the pandemic has impacted women of color. We'll focus on what we have seen, what we have learned, and how we can take that to improve the lives of women of color through politics and advocacy. Each episode, you will hear from multiple guests as we tackle these important questions. To kick off the season, we're talking about vaccinations this episode. And so you know, we are pro-vaxxer over here. Our first guest is emergency room physician, Dr. Ruby Long. We chat about how we can continue to keep ourselves safe and manage the COVID-19 pandemic. Our second guest is Assemblywoman from the Bronx 87th District of New York State, Karina Reyes, who shares her experience at the front line of the pandemic as a nurse. And finally, Dr. Sonia Hughes, Vice President of Strategy and Service Excellence at Aetna, a CVS health company, will walk us through some of the things we are hearing about COVID and the vaccine and what is really true and not just internet fodder. I hope you enjoy this episode. For our conversation, we are joined by the amazing Dr. Ruby Long, who I got to know when she would come on the When Will Black Women conversations and give us updates on COVID, the vaccines, and just all the sorts of black girl medical magic. We're all in Dr. Long. So Dr. Long, I know that you're super busy. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you so much, Ashanti. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And I want to ask you, really, how are you doing? It has been over a year now, a very long year for our medical workers, our frontline workers. How have you been doing during this time? It's a, it's a lot. There's been everything from fear to excitement to just disgust. Yeah. <laughs> but right now, I think um, I'm feeling optimistic. And um, I think that's really helpful, but it, it has been a journey. And for better or for worse, I think we have lost some really good healthcare providers, some from dying or complications of COVID, some from the trauma and the toll of taking care of super sick people every day. They've decided to take early retirement or just change careers. I know just from social media, there were so many healthcare professionals who would you know, tweet about what was going on. They would share stories on Facebook. And it still seems that there's a lot that the general public really didn't know and hear about when it came to COVID-19 and what our physicians and frontline workers were experiencing. And I also want to ask you, what was it like just being a Black woman doctor or a woman of color doctor during that time? And I really want to ask this question, too, because at the time that we're recording this, there's a viral TikTok that's going around of a all black medical crew. And it's like, OK, when the patient refuses to see someone black and the entire team is black and it's just 
And if y'all haven't seen the TikTok, you have to go see it because I love it. The doctors are black. The nurses are black. I loved when the medical students came out and they were black. But we know that's very real. I know just from times that I've been in doctor's offices or the hospitals, there are those people. So you're dealing not only with an unprecedented pandemic, but also racism doesn't go away during that time. Oh, no. Um, Speaking on my behalf, particularly with COVID patients, things have been pretty fair. I think, you know, some people probably have been like, this is not what I expected. (laughs) Definitely not who I expected to walk through the door. But I think they are sober enough to be like, I am very sick. And Mm. I am accepting of anyone that is willing to help me. And then... From the other side, I think I've definitely seen some yahoos that, you know, are not kind. But when you think about it, most of the time, like the the staff that's working with me, they step up, right? They're not just bystanders. They actually are upstanders and oftentimes are like, hey, don't tolerate that here. You know, this is our physician. Please respect her. And so there's there's a lot. Um, And I think with that comes the undercurrent of just patients being stressed, providers being stressed, and it's a lot. So the pandemic has made so many people think about their health in all the ways, the mental health, the physical health, the emotional health. From what you've seen through the pandemic, is there any advice, tips that you can give? Just what are those things that we can do just to be healthier? So it's kind of old school in all honesty, like, going to bed at a reasonable time, (laughs) eating a healthy, nutritious diet. These are the secret keys that help your immune system stay strong, stay healthy. And so when we call them pathogens, but when germs approach your body, if your immune system is healthy and stronger, then you have a better chance to resist infection in the first place. It's just super important to one, take care of yourself. Two, the things that sometimes we've been putting off, like going to the dentist, going to get a physical, going to get that mammogram, that pap smear, that colonoscopy. It's time to jump back in and start doing routine healthcare because what we don't want is something that could be treated right away, turn into something that maybe not be treated. And that I think is probably the biggest thing right now is just make sure you do your routine, regular medical care. That is good, solid advice that you know, I admit there are times where I was so bad about that. But then the older you get, you're like, I'm looking forward to scheduling this mammogram. I want to make sure that there isn't anything going on. So with the pandemic, we're at the time now where we have the vaccines, you know, from different companies, and we still see a lot of misinformation happening and a lot of people not wanting to get vaccinated. And we know there's that small percentage of the population where we can't change their mind. They're just not going to get it at all. But we know that there is that percentage that is just skeptical. They may have believed a lot of the misinformation. In your opinion, what are some of the things that we can do to let those people know that the vaccine is safe, that is something that you should get, especially if we have any of those people who are our family, our friends, our colleagues, you know, we, we want to see them around a lot longer, like get your vaccine, do your preventative care. What are some of the things we can say? I think the first thing is we know 
we absolutely know what the outcome of COVID is if you get infected. We know that 5% of the people that get COVID will wind up in the ICU. So many will wind up dying or having very significant disability. There's this thing out there called long haulers. And we just really don't know the extent of COVID. And so we know that with masking, social distancing, and um, vaccinations, you have some armor on board. You know, are you 100% bulletproof? No, but 95, 97% sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) And so if we were playing the lottery and you knew you had a chance to hit that jackpot 97% of the time, I would say go for it. Why not? I'm wearing my pro-vaxxer shirt today, so clearly everyone knows what side that I am on. So this pandemic, it has also opened up the conversation about the inequities in healthcare, especially for Black and Brown communities, Black and Brown women. Has there been anything that you've seen that you would like to see truly improve? post-pandemic. And I know there's so many things that you can say, but what are some of the ways that you think medical professionals can help bridge that gap, especially after this experience? Absolutely. So I think acknowledging lived experiences of our patients, no matter what spectrum of the rainbow they come from, be it color, be it gender identity, or be it ethnicity, just acknowledge each individual's personal perspective and respect each person as though they are a human being. And so there are some progressive medical schools that have actually done more than just put a statement on their um, website. Some people have actually revamped their curriculum so that structural racism is now being discussed at the first year of medical school. And then from um, the actual care provider standpoint, Um, Many facilities are incorporating these things called social determinants of health. And so ideally, when a patient comes in, you figure out what are the things that make up their livelihood in their environment. And social determinants of health are the places we live, we work, we learn, we retire, because we found that so much of our healthcare outcomes are not related to your genes or your family history, per se, Um, But so much of it is related to access to care and the environments we live in. So when we incorporate social determinants of health, that is identifying each person as an individual and recognizing how we can shape the care plan best for them. There's also just been information coming out where a lot of people who are in medical school will still say that Black people feel less pain. It's just shocking to see that, that there's people who want to take care of people, but still don't see the humanity in some of the people that they're going to have to serve their patients. Yeah. And, and (laughs) that fact that you speak of is not very old. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we know that some people with current day knowledge believe some of these things. And that's why getting at the root cause of the education for students is so important There are national organizations actively trying to structure curriculum that is reflective of our um, citizens and our visitors that live here in our country, Um, particularly the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine is pushing an agenda to actually have equitable research initiatives. 
And I think part of that comes from having faculty members that have various diverse backgrounds, as well as um, there are some faculty members that have just been floored by the disparities that have come about from COVID. So earlier you talked about how you had a lot of colleagues who would leave the medical field because of the pandemic and the stress and the trauma. And this has caused a lot of people to also not want to go into the medical field. But as you just said, we need those people who see us, who understand, so we especially need our Black, Brown, Indigenous women in the medical field. What advice would you give to anyone, especially a Black, Brown, Indigenous woman who is thinking about a career in medicine? Oh, the world is open. <laughs> There's drama, but it's the choice that you make to let it affect your life. And legitimately, there are days that are hard, but there are other days that are awesome. There are days that maybe I deliver a baby. Or maybe there's a patient that had a stroke and they say thank you, right? Um, and the fact that maybe before they couldn't speak when I first met them. So there are joys out there to be had in medicine. Um, and <laughs> the path is not easy, um, but it is definitely worthwhile. Dr. Long, we just talked about the fact that there are those people that don't want to get vaccinated. You gave us some helpful tips to talk to the people who we want to encourage to get vaccinated. Can you give us an update on where we are with vaccination rates, especially among Black, Brown, and Indigenous women? People now over the age of 12 are ready for bulletproof action with the vaccination. Um, and so... The, the big issue, I think, is that nearly 60% um, of white or Caucasian Americans are vaccinated. We still have some ways to go. Only 22% of our African Americans are vaccinated and 29% of our Latinx community is vaccinated. There have been some great shifts where some of these gaps are starting to close, particularly our indigenous populations are now reaching vaccination rates of 45%. And so we have to recognize that we are all in this situation together. And so even though those numbers are improving tremendously and there's a huge effort to close that gap. Yes, we, we got to help. We got to get on it. And I'm excited for that younger age group because that means one of my nephews can finally get vaccinated. And that makes me happy. But I also realize I'm one of the very lucky ones throughout this where I can say the pandemic is over and I didn't lose a family member. And not a lot of people can say that. So every time I see like an age group open, that just makes me so happy because that means that someone in my family can get vaccinated and get protected. And my heart breaks for those that are in that 18 to 24 year old age group. There has been so much stress anxiety and depression that is starting to come out within those yes. um, cohorts or, or groups of young people. And so many people often don't know where to look for help or, or assistance, right? Many people are just starting their new adult lives. And this is not what they signed up for when right. they were graduating <laughs> from high school and college. Right. And so I just want to leave a couple of tips because if there are people who are really struggling with um, mental health issues or any sort of crisis, there's the NAMI organization, the National Alliance on Mental Health. They have 24-hour crisis workers available. So if you're experiencing homelessness, 
food insecurity or intimate partner violence, child abuse, all these things we know are on the rise right now. You can text them at 741-741. And that number again is 741-741. And if things are just really feeling overwhelmed and you're very sad, blue, depressed, and having thoughts of wanting to hurt or kill yourself, the suicide prevention line is always open. Their number is 800-273-TALK. And that's 800-273-8255. And I'm really optimistic that we will turn the corner on this. I think we just have to acknowledge that this COVID is a real threat and that with taking some active measures, we can't protect ourselves. However, there are variants of concern out there. So you have to inform yourself and figure out how much of a risk you want to take, particularly in indoor crowded areas. And we know that various sources of information can help you inform yourself as as best as possible. And so I strongly encourage that people go to the World Health Organization, to the CDC, for government, for organizational information and scientific data and tips on how to best prepare yourself, go to the grocery store, how to hang out with the barbecue, Um, The World Health Organization has awesome information on that. And then lastly, stay current with the news. And so I just take it on each person to inform yourself with the information and figure out how much risk you want to take. Um, My take home to you is just take care of yourself so that your immune system stays strong. Inform yourself and know that we can beat this thing, but we just got to be smart about it. Dr. Ruby Long, thank you for everything that you do. And we really appreciate you joining us today and giving us this inside behind the scenes look at the pandemic and also giving us some tips to stay healthy as we venture out back into the world. I am so excited to talk to our next guest, someone who has truly been on the front lines during the pandemic, Bronx Assemblywoman, Karina Reyes. How are you doing today, Assemblywoman? I'm well in your Shanti, good to be here. Uh, Thank you for having us. You say you worked a lot like during the the beginning of the pandemic. So what is it like to be on the other side of the pandemic with the vaccinations that are happening now? We're seeing a lot of the mandates on mask lifting. Do you feel that we're getting to a place where we're starting to see the other side of this truly? Absolutely. I think we are We are at that point where you know, when you reach the end of the tunnel and you see the light and, and you're almost kind of stepping into it. And I think that's where we are in terms of our, our pandemic recovery. The vaccines have gone a long way to mitigate the spread of it. And we see that in the numbers of infection rates, the number of hospitalizations. It's really night and day compared to a year ago. Uh, And that's thanks to the vaccines and people actually making sure that they get vaccinated. And I think for everyone, it just feels great to say, you know, to to not have to wear your mask outside, um, to be able to do some of the things that you weren't able to do before. Um, I remember when even um, retail was closed and, and you couldn't buy anything other than groceries. Um, And that was a challenge. And here we are a year later where um, all of our stores are open, at least the ones that uh, thankfully have survived. Um, And and it feels like, like we're back to a more normal sense of life. 
And with the vaccinations, we know that there has been a big push to make sure that communities of color are getting vaccinated. We talked a lot on the podcast about the need for access to vaccinations. From where you're sitting, how is the vaccination rate looking for women of color? When you look at pockets of predominantly African-American or or, uh, minority communities, those numbers change depending on the demographic. And I think part of that is just there is a a inherent mistrust in healthcare in in minority communities, particularly the African-American communities. And then there is this, I think, what, what ended up being a total PR disaster when the CDC paused the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, right? The biggest challenge has been overcoming that because that then stirred in in so many folks all those uncertainties and all those questions that they had. And it made made folks not want to get vaccinated. And I, I think that we have to get to a point where the majority of our community is vaccinated and those those who can get vaccinated in order for us to reach a true herd immunity. But we may not necessarily reach the herd immunity that that we would like. Um, and that has been that has been a challenge. And we've been working really hard to um, educate the community. You know, somebody like me with a clinical background, I, I trust science. And historically, I know what vaccines have done to save our communities. Look, I come from a third world country and my grandmother remembers yellow fever where she lost a brother to it. And she tells, she, you know, she mentions it all the time that thanks to vaccines, they were able to overcome that back then. Um, or I have um, spoken to folks that remember polio and what vac- how vaccines changed, changed the course of that of that disease, particularly for parents, because it meant that you had a child that was completely healthy. And if they contracted polio, they could have been completely uh, incapacitated. And I think for some people that that's not real. Uh, they don't have that historical context. So for us, that's very real. And, and kind of disseminating that information to our communities and letting them know that the risk of contracting the virus is so much greater than the very small risk and side effects possible side effects of a vaccine. So we've been doing work to to educate our community and then also making it accessible because early on during the vaccine rollout, what we saw was that it wasn't really reaching the community. It was hard to get. It was hard to get appointments, particularly for our seniors who aren't um, tech savvy and couldn't navigate the online system. They couldn't get an appointment. They couldn't figure it out. So it was very prohibitive in that sense. And we want to make sure that vaccines are accessible to everyone. So we, along with the the city government and state government, have been doing um, mobile vaccination sites, uh, vaccine buses in our communities. We've been doing vaccine buses at the train stations, vaccine drives at our senior centers, at our NYCHA developments, um, just making sure that the community that needs it the most has access to it and is getting vaccinated. Talking about vaccines, one of the things that I did, like when the pandemic hit, was I did more research on the flu pandemic and everything that happened. And you really would have thought nothing had changed with how people were acting, like seeing the old lit with people who didn't want to wear their mask. And even today, there's still people that don't even want to get the flu vaccine. And I had a friend who used to work at Health and Human Services and She educated all of us on the importance of even getting your flu vaccine. So what can we do during this time 
to help the amazing leaders, nurses like you with the education of our community. Because when they did pause the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I was like, oh no, here we go. Now people are just going to start acting crazy. And of course I went to Twitter and everyone's like, see, it's because the microchip isn't working. That's why they have to stop it. And I'm like, your phone is a microchip, okay? That thing that you use every single day, that's what they're tracking you with. So what can we do as everyday people to encourage people to get vaccinated? I'm someone who's vaccinated. You know, I swear that waiting room for the 15 minutes was like the happiest place on earth. Like people were so great. And so what can we do to make sure that we're protecting the ones that we love who are still skeptical? Because like you said, it still does exist. One is get vaccinated and two, share your story about it and share the reasons why you got vaccinated. Share your experience during and after the vaccine, because I think I think some people imagine that the process is going to take long. Right. It's going to be like a like standing on a great adventure line. And it's not. Um, we worked really hard to make the, the process go really smooth and fast. Um, so oftentimes it takes, what, 15, 20 minutes to get it done. And talking to talking to people about your experience after the vaccine, right? Like like some people say, oh, my God, I'm going to, you know, grow another arm. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get COVID. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. And the same thing with the flu vaccine. I think people um, would say, if I get the flu vaccine, I'm going to get the flu. And, and differentiating between actually having the flu and the immune response that feels like you're getting the flu. Um, so a lot of a lot of people have um, experienced side effects after the vaccine. That's totally expected. And it's definitely not COVID. And and the more people talk, like, for example, I was one of the first people to get vaccinated. I, I mean, I got vaccinated in January because I was active medical staff um, and I got the Pfizer. And, and my first dose, I, I had a fever for like three days, chills. It, it, it knocked me out. And my second dose, same thing, three days, fever, chills, in bed, knocked out. But it's definitely not COVID. And for me, it's very real because I got to see how people are actually dying from COVID. Um, I think some folks are a little removed from that, right? It's Their context is what they see on TV, what they see on the news, but they haven't really ex- experienced how that the virus and the disease progresses. And for me, I remember receiving patients who were fine at the beginning of my shift you know, walked from the stretcher to their bed. They had oxygen. Yeah, they were um, having a little trouble breathing, but, you know, they were still okay talking. They were talking to me, talking to their families on their devices. And by the end of my shift, they were unfortunately dead. And that's that's the reality that a lot of us were living and, and, and putting ourselves at risk. So that's why we encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, and I think it's important that everybody share their stories and their experiences. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. I think it's important for us to dispel this myth. The reason why the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was paused was because they wanted to look at the data again, because they found that some women, some younger women were developing blood clots um, after the vaccine. But birth control, hormonal birth control, even the lowest dose has a higher um, likelihood of women developing blood clots than the vaccine does. And that doesn't stop women from t- from taking birth control. Yes. Um, <laughs> they take it. They take it just the same um, because the benefits outweigh the risk. And this is the same thing with the vaccine. The benefits outweigh the risk. 
Assemblywoman, I do want to get into our next question. You know, we are nearing the end of the pandemic, but we know that there are going to be going to be some effects. You know, we're still going to see a longer impact. You talked about some of those things earlier in the interview with your work in the assembly. What are some of the things that we're still going to have to fight for in terms of equality, especially for communities of color? Because this pandemic exposed so much that we all knew to be true with communities of color from broadband access to healthcare access. How can we use this time to improve what wasn't working in the past and make things better, especially for women of color? Um, it's, it's been an, an unfortunate reality that has become ever more clear the disparities. Um, and I think for women of color, we've always known it and experienced it and lived it. But for other folks, it's meant really um, listening to us when we say we have to change the system. It's not working for us. So that has been very helpful in that sense, because I think people are paying more attention to us. And, and as legislators, we've been trying to kind of chip away at all aspects of our disparities. One, of course, I think we're going to have to continue to fight to expand access uh, to health care for women and women of color and communities of color and our immigrant communities. Um, because what we've learned during this pandemic is that we are only as healthy as our weakest link. And that means that we have to make sure that every person in our community has access to care, to preventative care. You know, when you, t- when you think about how viruses spread, um, we are the vectors, right? They, we are the ones that have to help it spread. That is the only reason why viruses infect us is so they can multiply and infect other people and continue their, their livelihood, right? To continue to survive. Um, and if we have people in our communities that have no access to healthcare, that are living below poverty, that are in, in an unhealthy state of their lives, then that affects all, all of us collectively. Similarly with education, and when we had to transition very quickly to remote learning, I think for somebody who's affluent, um, who has all the devices and the connectivity and the broadband access and all of that, it was very simple. For a lot of our children, it was hard, not just because they didn't have the device, because that was a big that was a big issue, having the device or having the broadband access. But sometimes for these kids, it's like, I don't have the space, the quiet space for me to sit down and do my homework. For many of them, school was a respite from the struggles of their everyday life. It was a place where they had social and emotional support and and they've been affected um, in a way that we may not see until for years to come, uh, the effects that our kids are, are, are going to end up with after this pandemic. Um, and we're gonna have to start really diverting resources to that, to the mental health of our children, to the mental health of, of individuals that have struggle during this time as well. Uh, for women, you know, domestic violence has been an issue that has that has uh, been key during this time. When you're thinking about quarantining and quarantining uh, in a space with your abuser, what does that mean for women, their mental state, and their ability to move forward after this? So we have to continue as a society to invest in our social safety nets. In a t- before we would, that was usually the first things to get cut. 
And now we can no longer do that. It's impossible for us to do that because our our society won't survive. And then we also have to deal with the economic impact of this of this pandemic. We saw record unemployment. We saw a record small businesses closing. And that means that there are people in our communities who no longer have those jobs um, and need to figure out how to pay rent, how to put food on the table, um, and are relying right now on the government to step in and help them out. And that's what we've been trying to do We've for the past year, make sure that their rent gets paid and that small landlord gets their money as well because they rely on that money so, to survive. It's all kind of like interconnected. There isn't a single simple answer. There's a lot of issues that we are trying to contend with simultaneously. There are so many great issues that you outlined that we had to pay attention to. Women were taking their lived experiences and saying, okay, this pandemic has now happened. Where do we really need to be focusing attention? And it was on areas that people never thought. We were just saying, oh, everyone just stay home. Two weeks, this will be over. And no, a lot of people were going into really dangerous situations. So Assemblywoman, thank you so much for your leadership in the Assembly as a nurse. I really appreciate you taking the time out today to talk to our listeners and give us some more education on issues we need to be paying attention to and holding our elected leaders accountable on as we get out of this pandemic. All right, everyone, time for a new segment called Factor Cap. We'll be joined by Dr. Sonia Hughes, the Vice President of Strategy and Service Excellence at Aetna. Okay, Dr. Hughes, here we go. Does the vaccine have a microchip tracking system in it? COVID-19 vaccines are free from metals as well as any manufactured products such as microelectronics, electrodes, So short answer is no. That's what I thought. And I like to tell people your phone is a microchip tracking system. Can the vaccine impact a person's menstrual cycle? So several dozen women reported having heavier than usual periods, painful cramps, and unusual menstrual cycles after being vaccinated through the CDC Vaccine Adverse event reporting system, or VAERS, VAERS. These reports are just anecdotal. Experts are studying this now, but no women in the clinical trials reported changes to their menstrual cycle after receiving the vaccine. So certainly, if menstrual cycle changes are acknowledged or if they persist after having the vaccine, a woman should talk with her healthcare provider. That is really good to know, and it's an important reminder that we should all make sure that we're getting our annual visits at the gynecologist. Does the COVID-19 vaccine affect fertility? Currently, there is no evidence that any vaccines, including COVID-19 vaccines, cause female or male fertility problems. Do vaccinated people need to get a booster shot every six months? Currently, the need for and the timing for a COVID-19 vaccine uh, booster uh, hasn't been established. No additional doses are recommended at this time. Experts say it's too early to speculate whether or not we'll need booster shots like some other routine vaccines. We are now not sure if COVID came from bats or was man-made. So COVID-19 is called a novel coronavirus or a new virus. It first appeared in China 
had never been seen before, and it quickly gained the attention of scientists around the world. Epidemiologists did investigations to find out how this new virus started. And these investigations showed that those who were affected when they became sick and where they had been just before they became sick. The epidemiologists or the, the scientists that were studying this determined that the virus possibly came from an animal sold at a, a market in Wuhan, China. So that's the information that we have at this time. Is it true that everyone who died from COVID was vitamin D deficient? Uh, the short answer to this is no. There were early studies that found a percentage of those who died from COVID-19 were vitamin D deficient, but there's been no official linkage between vitamin D deficiency and COVID-19 morbidity. Uh, vitamin D does have a potential role in preventing infections. There are no significant vitamin D trials that have been completed. Thank you for that information. As someone who is vitamin D deficient and takes those vitamins to add them into my body, I really appreciate that information. True or false, young people are less likely to catch and die from COVID if exposed. Younger people are less likely to be hospitalized because of COVID-19 or to die from it. People in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are just as likely to catch the virus. Data from one study shows that more than 3,000 adults between the ages of 18 to 34 who contracted COVID-19 and became sick enough to require a hospital stay, 21% of those people ended up in the intensive care and 10% were placed on a breathing machine, and only about 3%, so 2.7% died. If you contracted COVID and recovered, are you immune and don't need the vaccine? So most people who've recovered from COVID-19 have antibodies against the virus, but there's no evidence that this will protect them if they're exposed again. Yet again, another reminder to get vaccinated. And our final question, Dr. Hughes. Do we really need the vaccine or do we just need to achieve herd immunity? Yes, we, we really do need vaccines to survive the COVID-19 pandemic. Herd immunity occurs when there's a critical mass of people, so a group of people uh, become immune to a pathogen like a virus. The basic reproduction number, uh, that's a number that represents how infectious a pathogen is Estimates for COVID-19, this estimate is to be is between 2.5 and 4. And what that means is that every person who contracts COVID-19 is likely to infect two and a half to four other people. The natural herd immunity for COVID-19 is estimated to take uh, four to five years. With the very effective, very effective COVID-19 vaccines that are available today, we can just, you know, take a shortcut to this process and, it's, and achieve that same immunity response uh, in a fraction of the time. Well, everyone, you heard it directly from an amazing doctor who knows a lot. When the pandemic hit, the most people around the world started doing research on pandemics. For some, this meant watching action-packed pandemic-themed movies. I did not. For others, it was diving into documentaries focused on the next big pandemic and its impact. I enjoy hearing the recap from my friends. But for me, I did Google searches galore about the last big pandemic that rocked our planet, the Spanish flu. Many similarities arose. People being caught off guard, supply shortages, healthcare workers at the front lines, and people who refused to wear their masks. 
Yes, the anti-maskers existed even during the flu pandemic. For me, personally, wearing my mask wasn't an issue. I wanted to protect myself. I wanted to protect those close to me. And yes, I even wanted to protect complete strangers. During times like this, people's individual beliefs and values are always at play. But my beliefs and values are centered firmly around caring and having empathy for my fellow humans. If you're listening to this episode, then you and I are the lucky ones. We made it out of the pandemic alive. While the past year has been hard for everyone, and is still very hard for some, one way we can make life easier is by getting vaccinated. There are those that just won't do it, as we know. There are some that can't because of pre-existing conditions and other underlying health reasons. Some can't access it. And there are those that are just skeptical. The ones that are skeptical are where we can do our part to encourage them to become pro-vaxxer. And I hope the information in this episode will help you do that. So in conclusion, let's get vaccinated and also engage our elected leaders to continue to provide support and assistance to those who still need it. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. If you love the podcast, please take the time to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or make sure to subscribe on Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at thebgguide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Check out our next episode where we'll talk about the job loss and financial hardships women of color faced during the pandemic. Until next time, Brown Girls.